listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche and I'm joined by my amazing podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, folks. All right, everyone. Today, we're talking about the rise of the CRO role. What are some common misconceptions about the role? And what might be some best practice, especially in today's economic times, as everyone's trying to generate more revenue? So to help us out with this topic today, we have an expert here, Warren Zena, who's a 20-plus year veteran in the B2B sales and marketing industry as a top B2B seller, sales leader, and executive PL buyer of B2B services. He's now the founder of the CRO Collective, where he's helping B2B companies succeed by ensuring the success of the chief revenue officers. Warren, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well articulated. Thanks for that <laughs> great introduction. Perfect. I got that off your LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> I must have wrote that, I don't know how long ago, so... Good. I remember, wow, I got that right. So thank you. <laughs> I love when people read stuff off of LinkedIn or something. I go, man, that's really good. What'd you get? They go, you wrote it. <laughs> uh, well, maybe someone else wrote it for me, I should say. I remember how much stuff I write. Something we love to start with is, hey, Warren, what might be something that you're passionate about that those that only know you through work might be surprised to know about? Sure. Okay. So people don't know, and I don't do much of it, but I was... I was an artist. I went to school for art. I'm not really a business person by nature, to be honest with you. I don't know. Maybe I am, but I didn't find that out until later. You know, I went to school. I was a I was a performer. I was an actor. I was an artist. I painted a bunch of canvases and all the kinds of stuff. I studied art history. And then uh, five or six years after I graduated from school, I did actually pursue it. I went and I got an agent. I did some work. I got some, I got work. And then I also was going to go to culinary school because I like to cook a lot. So, you know, I have sort of like this side of me that business sort of took over, but I'd say the other thing too is, and there's a lot of people that say this, so I'm probably part of a large pool, but I know more about movies than most people. I can go crazy with this. I watch a lot and lots of movies and cinema. I studied film. I love the whole art of filmmaking, history of filmmaking. And then I think lastly is I've been involved for the last 30 years in a men's organization, support men to be better fathers, sons, husbands, citizens, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been a very core part of my life for 30 years. So I do a lot of stuff. So that's a bit about me. All right. Well, so we got to dig in a little bit. What's your favorite movie? Favorite? It's hard to say because you got topics, right? You've got genres. Right, right. So can't say one without avoiding an entire category. I think the best sort of cinematic experience you could have is if you could actually go and see an, a true 35 millimeter a print of Florence of Arabia in a large screen. It's nothing like it. It's really something to see. And I had the chance to do it twice. Probably won't happen again. I just don't see that happening again. I don't, you know, I have two young kids in their late teens and early twenties and, of them until I explained to them they haven't heard of David Lean before. So <laughs> that's a movie, right? Yeah. That's yeah. like, okay, got it. That's what movies were. I love the auteur era in the 70s, Hal Ashby films, you know, Shampoo and 
Warren Beatty made some great early films in the 70s. Heaven Can Wait. It's one of the funniest, greatest movies to watch. It's clean. It's awesome. It's so funny. If I didn't bring up both Godfather films, I'd probably be shot by all my <laughs> members of my family. So I have to because they're amazing. So, you know, there's a whole slew of stuff, but we can go on. This is a topic we can talk about for four or five hours, but that's... Okay. All right. About- Next podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. Be to- totally film-oriented. Load yeah. it up. <laughs> awesome. Well, so besides your interesting background there with your artistic background, your creative background, your cooking school and your, and your charity work, tell us a little bit about your business background then, because what led to the CRO Collective ultimately, like in where you are today? It's funny. A podcast that I just recorded, which I'm going to be putting out in the next couple of weeks, is with a gentleman who sort of started my career. I was living in New York City. I was an artist. I was an actor. I was working, of course, as a bartender in New York in, this, in the 80s. It was great. In the 90s, it was great. And the way that I used to make money when I was in college was I was a salesperson. I had a knack for it. I was good at it. So I was selling. First, I was working at the Alumni Association, trying to get schnooks to pay for some money to the college. I was pretty good at it. I ended up, you know, kind of becoming like the top telemarketer pain in the ass. And then in between jobs, in between summers, I was working as a taxicab dispatch person in LaGuardia Airport. It was a really weird job. I had to sell tickets for people to get into taxis and it was gangbusters. And then I got a job selling newspaper advertising for a local newspaper in New Jersey. And I doubled the size of their local, one of their local newspapers single-handedly. I just walked around door to door and sold advertising to stores and killed it. So I knew I could sell. I didn't want to. I just knew that I was good at it. And then in 1994, five, close friend of mine who was a salesperson, probably the best salesperson I ever met, after a series of adventures, he ended up getting engaged and he was traveling around the world with his fiance. And he came to me. It's a true story. I was working behind a bar and he came to me and he said, listen, I'm going away for three months and I have all these deals I got to close. I don't want to leave them hanging. And if I don't close them during those three months, I'm going to lose the opportunity. So I want you to close them for me. Here's the numbers. Make these phone calls. I know you can do this. Just do it. Get it done. And if you don't, fine. But I just want someone to pursue this. It would be stupid for me not to get these deals closed. So I did it. And I closed the deals. And he came back. He's like, I knew you could do this. Work for me. So he hired me as his consultant to help him sell for these clients he had, which were all advertising clients that had publications and other types of advertising-based platforms. And I just became a salesperson. I said, yes. And he basically started my career for me. He gave me a job and I worked for him for two years. And then his client hired me, like said, can I grab this guy and hire him full time? And so I worked for this guy in California and I traveled around the country selling and I did very well. And then Jim is his name. Jim ended up going to another place and starting another company and he hired me to go work there. And it just snowballed from there. I was selling very complex, technical, creative solutions. I worked mostly in sales and to kind of like how this happened, right? That nexus of this whole thing was the things that I were selling were mostly, if not exclusively, marketing services. So I was selling essentially promotional or website development or creative services. And so because I almost exclusively was selling agency services or boutique agency or creative services, I was developed not realizing, I didn't plan this, I was developing two skills at the same time. I was learning how to sell really well and also understand marketing really. 10 years in, I knew both as cold as you could. I was a really great marketer and I was a good salesperson. So I kind of had the whole thing without planning it. I just ended up knowing how to do both. I actually opened up my own agency about 15 years ago and I still have it. Zena Consulting Group. It's a, it's, a, it's a growth marketing agency. It does very well. And so this kind of put together the nexus of my business, which is the sales and marketing functions are 
interrelated, but frequently not performing as a team, right? And I noticed this. And then I, I got further and further ahead in my career. I became more of a strategist, started running teams, running sales teams, running revenue teams. And then I got hired a couple of the, the larger holding companies. One was Publicis Group, and the other one was Arvas, where I was running teams there, had a PL, et cetera. And this is where now I was a buyer because I had to build a product at these agencies. And so now I'm being courted by people like me, right? The, the schnook that comes in the office to try and sell me some you know, software platform. I'm like, I know this guy. I did this for 20 years. And I was not easy to sell to, as you can probably imagine. It was tough. But I learned a lot sitting on the other side of the table as an executive with a budget and seeing how agencies market themselves and sell themselves to people whom are potential buyers. And it was really eye-opening. It was things I knew, but I didn't see. And I saw this chasm between how salespeople go to market, how they deploy themselves, the disparity between the way salespeople talk about their products and the way their products are marketed. Sometimes it's incredible how different they are. That the website says one thing, the salespeople say another thing. The salespeople come in the office and they show this PowerPoint presentation and it doesn't make any sense and they're saying something completely different. It's like this disjointed, just so palpable. So what I started doing was, this wasn't really the nexus of it, but what I did was I was calling up the CEOs of these companies frequently after the salespeople would leave. I'd call them, you know, I'm the buyer. I'd say, listen, your guys just were here. Great guys, working hard, so good for you, but I'm not buying from them. And here's why. And I would tell the CEO, I'm like, look, you know, you don't have your act together over there. I said, you know, your guys are selling me something, but your marketing says something else. And I don't know what to believe. And frankly, if you don't have that together, then how are you going to service my business? I don't really feel good about this. And you got to get that together because you probably have a really good business, but you're, something's broken with the way you guys are going to market. And I could see it as a buyer and I'm, I'm being generous to tell you this. And so a few of them were like, could you come here, come down to my office and talk to my team about this? I said, sure. So I started getting all these consulting gigs with these guys who are asking like, who better than, than a buyer to come in and tell us what we're doing wrong? So I sort of built a little consulting practice from this and I was doing other things as well, but this is the nexus of this particular business. And then I got a couple of gigs. I was a CRO for a company. It was a massive failure. I saw how hiring a, a CRO slash president could be a disaster if it's not done properly. And I was like, enough already. I don't, I don't want to work for anybody anymore. I know that I don't have to. So it occurred to me that this chief revenue officer role is undefined. Okay, You can ask five people what the CRO role is and you'll get five different answers. That's, t- that's ridiculous. And I was like, why is this? Okay, well, What's going on in the market that no one has any ambiguity about a CMO is. You get the same answer from five people what the CMO is, as you should, right? You get the same answer from five people what a CFO is, or even a CEO, right? But the chief revenue officer, it is almost like a cipher that you can fill with anything you want. You know, I can make it up, right? And that's a big problem. And I noted that the issue to summate this whole thing is the misalignment between the revenue operational functions is what creates most problems related to scale, growth, and expansion. And without a leader running those groups in a proper way, it's going to be difficult to scale a business. And a chief revenue officer needs to do that. And if they don't, you're probably just going to end up having the same problems that you hope a CRO will fix. So I embarked on the idea of creating a opportunity in the marketplace that I saw, which is there's no one supporting chief revenue officers. I want to be the CRO guy. I spent like a year and a half writing up a whole bunch of treatises about this, did a lot of research, talked to people that are a hell of a lot smarter than me. I didn't get one person tell me I was nuts. 
February, I was like, my God, I'm so glad you're doing this. This needed. So I created a business and that's how it started. Wow. That's pretty awesome. It was fun. So that's what I'm doing right now. Now I'm committed. And now what? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what's the next step for for well, now what meaning, okay it's like you know when that great movie is another movie reference so robert referenced that we called the candidate and you know he was running for president but he didn't really want the job it was all just sort of like a like a thing he was running to try and it was he's gene hackman was in it was a great movie anyway at the end he wins and he stands in the room with hackman he's like now what do we do <laughs> it's kind of like where i am right now now what do i do you know so okay hey Warren. so i, I got a question for you so I agree with you totally about sales and marketing. And in fact, you know, we could argue today how services and everything else need to be in alignment as well, right? Customer success is without question a big part of this. I'd say services as well. Let's think about history and I'd love to get your perspective. I mean, you've seen this from multiple perspectives. You've seen it across different verticals. In your perspective, how has those roles evolved over the last 10 or 20 years? You're talking about the sales and marketing functions? Those, yeah. yeah, a lot. So, so technology has been the biggest disruptor to these things. So when I was selling with Jim, like back in the 90s, it was just you know raw. It was like a piece of paper. We had a whiteboard behind us with all of our accounts on it, and we made phone calls all day. I wasn't like unlike anybody else. And the entrance of all these CRM platforms and online listening tools and phone dialers and all these other automation platforms and SaaS businesses has completely changed sales for the worse, for the worse. It's not better. Okay. And a bit old school, right? So I'll, I'll defend this. I think a lot of people say, you're nuts. It's awesome. I got all these tools now. I could never do any of this shit back then. I was like, well, you probably didn't have to, you know, so we could talk about whether they're needed or not. And I think there's a lot of, you know, just like tech hype. People want tools. People like tools. People want to add tools. And so the sales... I mean, look, the whole thing of like an SDR is nuts to me. I mean, if I came into a job when I was selling and I said, well, I need somebody to get my meetings for me. They say, get the fuck out of the, what are you talking about? We need, that's your job. You get the meetings. You're a salesperson, you know? And I think that it's, it's interesting because businesses have changed so much now that they've completely created a new category, this layer, and it's all technologically driven. Right. I mean, they have young people who just have tools in front of them and they just bang out as much as they possibly can and they play the numbers game. So that's changed. So some of these older, more, let's call them traditional sales modalities where you're doing research and you're understanding the customer, those things have gone by the wayside for, for two reasons. It's not just technology, it's also because the types of ways that we sell and scale businesses has changed. So it used to be, you know, you had long sales cycles and that was the norm. Now there's transactional sales. Um, this whole SaaS business has created opportunities where I can get many sales this month. And so I want to churn as many customers as I possibly can, which creates a whole different dynamic in the way you approach things. So someone like myself, who's more of a relationship seller, probably wouldn't do well in a SaaS business because I'm used to actually having conversations with people, not just trying to get as much stuff out as possible. And I think that's changed. And customers don't like it. Customers are very unhappy about this. This is a very big dissatisfaction with the way the sales channels are coming at them these days. It's a big problem. Yeah, you know, the old days, marketing was a creative endeavor, right? It was mostly about brand, image, evoking emotion, creating that sort of thing. And it's, as we've all known very well, it's become a very data-driven, metrics-driven discipline. I'd say it's a two-headed animal, right? You've got on one hand, you've got the people who still are responsible for really putting together great messaging and putting together language. And then there are people who are responsible for for metrics and driving results. 
and they're not the same brain. And I think that a marketing person trying to do both, it's really difficult to find someone that can do both. And so marketing has become a much more complex scientific endeavor. And I think it's sacrificed the creativity in some degree. And then the customer success function, as you know, it's grown into an entire industry now. You know, I mean, customers need to be taken care of. There's a whole industry associated with customer longevity and customer churn and, you know, customer growth. So it's a different world. And if I'm a CEO of a B2B company, managing all this stuff is very complicated and you need somebody to kind of help wrangle it all together and make sense. Where there's a ton there to unpack, and I couldn't agree with you more in a lot and most of it, actually. You know, it's funny. So on one hand, you got these organizations that talk about product-led growth and how customers don't want to be touched and communicated to. And and then on the other hand, you think about the industry and you go, oh, maybe that's why we have such a huge need for customer success, because no one's actually talking to the customer. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's yeah. why all our deals are small. Because yep. we don't engage with them and really understand the customer and why they need it. We just kind of assume the product will sell itself, which is great early on for those early adopters, maybe. But if you really want to develop it, at the end of the day, you got to really service that customer better. But yeah, if you don't mind, I want to say an anecdote that happened this week twice. So as I'm moving, I'm making a lot of purchases now. Mm-hmm. So I've had a lot of experiences with interacting with companies because I'm making a lot more purchases than I've made in, in probably in the last 20 years. And two times this week, I'm buying something that I need. And then there was a, a question I had or whatever, it might have been ever. And the response I got back was, there's only one way to reach them, and that's through email. And they made it, both companies made it explicitly clear that, you know, they did it in this sort of like nice way. They're like, well, you know, we really found in an email, this is, you know, we don't really have phone calls with people anymore. We did all through email. We find it's much more effective and much more efficient. And so you'll hear back from us in a couple of days. And I'm thinking to myself, that's nuts. That's crazy. Like basically what they're saying to me, these companies, both of them, I won't name them, I should, is we made a decision for our own efficiency and our own managing of our resources and it's now your problem. As opposed to what would be best for the customer? Let's just figure out a way to do that. And that happens a lot now. It's really the, the clients are really thinking more about how they need to run their business and trying to get the customer to accommodate their limitations. And this is the way we do things, as opposed to how do you want us to do things? And it's just incredible. This sort of like weird arrogance of this note to me was like, you know, this is what we do. And we don't talk to people and it's better. And says who, you know, it's amazing. And I think this is prevalent. I do. I think that they got the sale. I bought the product. I'm on the other side of the transom. So now I'm a customer, but I'm not going to talk to anybody. That to me is just really, that's not cool. I had a class this week. I I taught a workshop and (laughs) we talk about, of course, like the reverse timeline of a plan, a mutual success plan, right? So what is the date that the customer is receiving value from working with you? Not the date of a signature on a contract. So we break that up and we go through this exercise where we talk about all of the plan steps before the signature and then after the signature. And the team I was with struggled with after the signature. It's like the sales ended, like sales person's responsibility ended at signature. And I was like, well, how can you even set properly set expectations with your customers if you don't know what needs to happen after that? Because then there's deployment, there's training, there's all of the other steps. And it just kind of shocked me and everything you're saying about, so you've got your SDR handing you a meeting now, and then you've just got to get it to a signature. 
and you're not responsible for anything before or after those two things. Their role it's, it's, has- It is bewildering to people. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to talk to the CEO of this one particular company and just ask them like what their <laughs> thinking was around I'm surprised this, but... you didn't call them up yet. <laughs> I don't want to get into it right now. But I, I, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a really cool exercise you just referenced. And I think it's good to expose post-sale service is the lost art. You know, Apple still does a decent job at it, even though they've fallen off and they used to be the best. But at least now, as you know, what they do is they send a packet to people and you work from home. But, you know, you get people that are smart and they're articulate and they can answer some questions. And, you know, they're reading off a prompter, but, you know, you feel like there's someone who gives a crap. Whereas I think everyone else I speak to, I don't, I, it's horrible. Yeah. It's torture, actually. And, and matter of fact, it feels almost like what they're saying is, let's make it so miserable they never do this again. <laughs> figure it out on your own. Do your own research on how to solve that problem. That's something else. People have sent me so many references to knowledge bases. And it's like, okay, so I just have to figure it out on my own, right? Yeah, like no exactly. one's going to talk to me for we five minutes. We put together a, a cadre <laughs> of questions that people have asked us with answers. Look here first, you know? Yeah. And look, I, I sort of get it. The thing is that is that I, I do think that it's probably extraordinarily expensive to be sort of empathetic, right? It's expensive to have a service layer. It doesn't make you any money, at least not direct return. It saves you or it grows customers. And I think it's, it makes a big investment. But I think that the fall off is that by ignoring it completely, you move a lot of opportunities. Matter of fact, the model that I propose to a chief revenue officer, and it sounds sort of like honky because everyone says this, but it's a customer-centric sort of a way of looking at the business. So if you take a look at marketing and you look at sales, the reason for these silos is because each one of these functions are independently led by their own metrics, right? So if I'm running a sales organization, I need to survive. I want my sales organization to survive and I want my job to be secure. So my metrics become the way that I manage my survival. And that's just the way the cultures are set up. So naturally what I'm going to do is I'm going to think about how can I protect my turf most by running the metrics that are going to make me survive the best, how can I sort of in a way without being manipulative, but kind of game the system to ensure my own survival, the growth of my teams, my access to budget, resources, et cetera. Same thing with the marketing organization. So what you got is you got two people who are ostensibly set up to create their own little almost sub-organizations within the larger organizations fighting for survival, very unaware of, if not even caring about how they impact one another. So I had a conversation with a client yesterday about how people that work in functional levels, they're understandably myopic in that they're looking at their own dashboards and they have their own problems and they want them solved. And unfortunately, when somebody in a functional position wants to make a change to the way in which they're operating, they probably have no idea how that one change will impact the rest of the people around them. They just want that one thing changed. You know? Here's the thing that's interesting. So let's say we remove that. Let's say we got rid of sales' own individual metrics and marketing's own separate individual metrics. One would think, well, there you go. That's the problem. The problem is that people still need something to guide them. You can't have nothing. You can't work in a vacuum. So what they'll do is they'll find other ones. And it's usually ones that are self-serving. So this is more like, like a family. So when a couple gets married and they're still sort of like without kids, they're very selfish around the things they can do because they can do whatever they want. But as soon as you have kids, all of a sudden, all the decisions you make completely change because they have to, they affect your children, right? So all of a sudden now, my preferences are modified because I realize, well, it's not going to work for the kids. We have to move to a neighborhood I don't like to live in, but it's better for them for the school. Or we have to buy different kinds of food because I want them to eat healthy. The customer is the child. So if everybody in the company cares about the customer outcomes, 
everyone will be forced to have to make decisions from the same place. So I look at it like, how could a CRO make customer outcomes, not revenue, but customer outcomes, the primary driver for alignment? Because no one will disagree on it, right? We all ask ourselves, what's best for the customer? It's easy to determine what the proper metrics are for all of us to operate under because they're separate from our own individual needs. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of these companies. They're still focused too much on getting more revenue or surviving or getting resources or accessing funds or getting a new funding round, which are important things, but they don't lead to organizations that have happy customers. So a chief revenue officer in the context I'm proposing is someone who isn't coming in from like, I'm a sales driver and I'm going to grow your business. It's like, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build an organization that's aligned around the same goals so that we're all on the same page. And while it seems uncomfortable to an investor or a VC person who wants growth, they will see that that will get that outcome and it'll be better. It's just hard getting them over that hump. And that's sort of like the challenge we have here is to try and create a different cultural approach to revenue operations. And that's that's sort of a core philosophy. So I appreciate you kind of giving me the impetus to make that claim, but that's sort of like where we're looking at it. Great points. And in fact, as I, as I talk to companies that are going from product-led growth to something else or whatever, I go like at the end of the day, if you really want the whole organization to be on the same page, you all got to be in the business of creating raving fans of your customer. And I, so I couldn't agree with you more. If you put the customer in the middle of it, all of a sudden things align a lot better. But when you put your own individual target in front of it, then you will do things to help yourself out that may not help further down the line in the growth of the company. But let's say a step back on the definition. So you said, hey, it helps align all these revenue functions. So why is it so hard to define for so many organizations? You know, why don't you call it a chief sales officer or, you know, senior VP of sales or why do organizations have such a hard time with it? Or should we even call it a chief customer officer for thinking of it that perspective? Because that's a whole other role that organizations think about. Love your perspective. Yeah. So I would say the reason for that is the interesting thing is when I reach out to a CEO who I know is in the midst of a search for a chief revenue officer, the interrogation sounds usually like this. I say, because at this point, that let's assume for the conversation that they know who I am and what I do. and I have that credibility, so they're willing to ask, answer my questions. And they'll say, uh, well, yeah, I mean, we, we really, the company needs to grow. Like we're at the stage now where we've uh, maxed out the first layer of customers that we have in our network and we're really happy. We've got around 20 million in revenues from that uh, sector, but we've, we're cannibalizing it and we reached that plateau. We now know we got to do really more formal marketing now. We have to expand. We have to really determine how our ICP is so we can identify people in the marketplace. And then I need to change the way we sell because we're selling to people who don't know about us. And so all those things are really key. And so I know that if I brought in someone who could run a sales organization really well and build all this stuff out, we'd be successful. So why don't you just hire a head of sales? Well, that's what I'm doing. I'm like, no, no, you're hired. You said you want a CRO. Well, what's the difference? I'm like, okay, let's have that conversation. Let's have that conversation. Here's the difference. So now you can call what you're describing. You can call that person a chief sales officer, I suppose. Actually, you can call the person anything you want. It's in my business, but I'm just giving you my perspective. So if you were to hire a, in my view, and I'm sorry, but I, I have a pretty good pedigree of this particular topic, a chief revenue officer oversees all revenue functions. And that means they oversee your commercial business. They see oversee sales. They oversee marketing. They oversee customer growth. 
And their job is to build a cohesive and aligned revenue operation so that all those functions are working together, not separately, which the model that you're proposing is going to create silos, which may get you short-term goals that'll make your investors happy. But two years from now, you're going to be having the same exact problem, but a bigger version of it because the foundation you have isn't aligned. And companies don't scale until they're aligned. Okay, I'm telling you this, it's not possible. So what I'm proposing is that you rethink the role and you hire the role differently to get that outcome sooner than making the mistakes that I know you're going to make and have to get there eventually with cost of a lot of people and investments and mistakes and money and lost opportunities. And so that's my proposition. And so why should you call it a chief revenue officer? Well, revenue is different than sales. Revenue is a word that means it's a functional growth term. It's not a commerce term, like going and getting another customer. That's a sale. Selling is a process of persuading people to make purchases, right? Which is a good thing. You need to do it really well. Revenue is how does the company generate all supporting functions toward growth? How does marketing inform people about your business? How does sales support marketing to close deals? How does customer success support customers to continue to thrive and grow? That's the role that, in my view, you should be looking for. And that's my point of view. So sometimes I'll say, get out of my office, or they'll say, wow, that's really interesting. Let's keep talking. And it's basically the cliff point for the conversations about it. So Warren, you got me sold. I love the perspective. It aligns great with my whole idea of you know really creating raving fans at the end of the day. Almost to a fault, most organizations that I see today, and again, I, I'm not pushing back on you. I, I want your advice. What I end okay, up seeing push back is, good. is, so I'm, I'm with you, but what I see is they have a CRO and then they also have a CMO that doesn't report to that individual. And even though they say they're working together and some do it better than others, they still have those two functions, which you're right. There's not one person looking at that whole revenue alignment across the organization because they got this separate CMO, which maybe it was just easier to hire or promote early on versus getting the CRO and it's a timing. Yeah, this is the biggest problem I see. And the reason for this is, I don't know why, but CMOs are promoted very early. I've seen situations where they'll hire someone to run marketing and then add like 1 million revenue, they'll call them CMO. It's almost like I think to some degree, there's this strange expectation I think it's two things. I think one thing is there's this unspoken belief that if I have a CMO, it makes my company seem smarter. If I say I have a CMO, I must have something serious enough that I need a CMO for. Okay. That's one thing. I do think there's window dressing there. And the other thing too is like, there is a weird pathway that culturally we've sort of created a career path where heads of marketing see the CMO role is in their sites and they just get it. There's this unspoken thought or discipline associated with what I call C-level placement management. There's not a thought about how do I construct my C-suite in a way that's going to actually build out the future of my organization. And leadership management is critical because if I randomly or superficially promote people into C-level positions, I've put myself in a tough spot because there's no other place for them to go. Like they've reached the pinnacle, right? They're, that's it. Now they run things. And the implications of those things are not really apparent until down the road when all of a sudden decisions like this need to be made. And it's like, oh shit, what the hell did I get myself into? So when I encounter this, 
I tell the CEO they have sort of like two options. My opinion is this, right? So whether they do or not, it's not true or not, I don't know. But my opinion is one option is CEO, you be the CRO. I mean, if the CMO and the CRO are reporting into you, then act like the CRO. Just keep your title, but I'm going to train you how to run that revenue operation the way that I say and do it as the CEO because someone's got to do it and they're not going to do it because I don't care how much they get along or meet well together. There's some dealing going on and stuff that I can assure you doesn't work for your business. And you should just do it. Now, that's going to be tough for you because you're going to have to be really focused on a very specific and granted, really important part of your business, but it's going to come at the expense of the other things that you need to be doing as a CEO that are also important, right? Like investor relations and other things. So I don't think it's sustainable, honestly, but if you don't want to replace them, that's what you should do. And let's talk about you doing that for a period of time until such time as you can replace yourself. Because once you do it, you'll see the need for it. Okay. Then the second option is demote people. Just sit them down and say, listen, we've reached a growth point in our business where we need to change the structure of things because if I want the company to grow and we want to build happy customers, the structure that we built that got us here won't get us there. Unfortunately, I need to make some changes and they're not a reflection of any of your skills or talents. It's just the organizational structure needs to change to accommodate a new way we go to business. And that means that I need someone to oversee the entire revenue operation and you need to report to that person. And so I know it's bad news, but that's what you got to do. Now, as you can probably imagine, most CEOs will do that. They don't have the guts. I mean, I'd really be impressed with a CEO. It's like, that's a great idea. I'm going to go do that. I'd be like, wow, this guy's probably will be a superstar CEO, frankly. Really, that would be a real superstar CEO, in my opinion. But most of them are like, uh, I don't want to upset Bob. I don't want to upset Mark. You know, you know, no way I'm not doing that. Can they that. keep the title and just move it under the CRO? Just like sometimes you have those titles under a COO. Sure. There's all kinds of ways you can do it, but here's the thing, right? Yes. Okay. So you can go to them and say, look, you can keep your titles. It's a funny story. I was managing a restaurant when I was an actor. It was a great place. I was managing this place. I like ran the whole place. And when you run a restaurant, when you manage a restaurant, when people walk in, they sort of think of it as your restaurant. It's not true. I don't own the thing, but I'm the guy. And they come in, I greet them, I sit them down, I run things, I'm managing everything. So it's like my room, it's my show, it's my place. And the owner of the restaurant started getting really pissed about that because it didn't look like you know he was really rolling the place, but Warren's really running. It was a stupid ego back crap. And so what happened was this ego battle was getting worse and worse. And while he was a good operator, he wasn't a really good manager. He wouldn't have been good with the people. And so ultimately, after a couple of conflicts and stuff, he came to me and he goes, listen, I, what I really want you to do is I really need you to run our bar because the bar can make us a lot of money and it's not making money because the person back there is an idiot and you could do a much better job of that. And I could tell it was sort of like either do this or I'm going to fire you. So I said, okay, fine. So now I'm behind the bar. So people are walking in the restaurant. All of a sudden, they're seeing the manager working behind the bar. Now, I made a, a miscalculation by accepting that demotion, right? I was making more money, to be honest with you. And I actually increased his sales by like three tolls because the bar makes the most money in the place. And this guy named Billy, who was like a mentor to me at the time, he owned like 20 restaurants. He comes up to me and goes, quit today. What you've done is you've created a situation where people have walked into the place and they're seeing you demoted. It's not good for you. You can't go down. You have to go up. And even though you're making more money and all that stuff, because the reality is that you can go be a bartender somewhere else, but in this place, everyone's looking at you like you've been demoted and it's not good for you. You should have walked out, right? And this is the conundrum. So if someone came to me and said, you know, you're the CMO and now I want you to kind of report to somebody, 
you know, it's going to be hard for them to say yes to that, even though it might not be a demotion, even if they're going to get the same amount of money and have the same thing. So this is extremely disruptive thing to do to people. And I think that what they're going to have to do is, I think door number one is the way to do this, is the CEO sort of has to take on the role of aligning things so as not to make that major disruption and probably do it a little easier. But the good news, bad news is that it won't be sustainable. Eventually, the CEO is going to cry uncle and go, okay, you know, I get it now. I need to bring in a CRO. Now they're going to have more guts, right? Because they've been in the situation more. It's not theoretical, it's real. And they're going to see the value of this and they're going to replace themselves. So I, I think that these are the challenges they have. But when I hire a chief revenue officer and they don't own marketing, unfortunately, I tell them, you're not a CRO. You're not. You are. It's on paper. You got a title, but you, you, if you don't own marketing, which is critical for a CRO to own, right? And I say own, not meaning like you do it because there's somebody responsible for it, but it's under you, right? You are responsible for its integration. You have to be or else. So it's a tough one. This is the toughest thing we have going on right now, I think. So you mentioned hiring and most of the time CROs that I see are good VPs of sales, running sales, and they get hired into this title. And like you said, it doesn't mean like they have to run marketing, but you got to understand it. Same thing with customer success and the whole renewals and growing that aspect of the business. I got fortunate in my career. I got asked to take over services when I ran sales. And at first I felt like it was the fox guard in the hen house, but it's a whole different set of metrics, a whole different set of personalities to make services really work. I thank my, my leader at the time, our GM, for putting me in that role because I learned a ton in those two years. So Warren, how do you hire the right personality or train them up? I mean, what do you do? Such a great question. So this is a tough one because, again, like that remember the thing I talked about with CMOs, how they sort of just, we've developed this weird pathway for CMOs. It's the same thing with CROs. You're right. I don't know why. I think probably for the some obvious reasons, most people that go for the chief revenue officer role are sales leaders, 90%, right? That's shifting now, and I'm going to get into that right now. And I think the pathway for sales leaders was that that's their next job, right? That's their like their career path is I'll get the sales job, I'll run the sales team, I'll run a sales organization, then I'll get hired to be a chief revenue officer. And this has sort of been part, partly what's exacerbated this problem because if I bring in somebody who runs a sales team, naturally, they're going to bias themselves towards that because that's their strength. So it'll end up probably happening. Scenario A, they get the CRO role, but they're really just the head of sales, but the title. That's problem A. Problem B is they do get the job properly. They are actually given all those functions, but because they don't know those other functions as well, they default themselves to the sales channel and they become sales leaders with a little bit of like a sprinkling of some marketing management and customer management. They don't really do the job as effectively as possible because as you understand, as things get tough, all of us, every human being relies on their strengths to get them out of bad situations. So if I know how to run a sales organization, if things go to shit, I'm going to start running that organization really well to get myself out of a bad spot. So you're sort of baking in this thing that you sort of have to look out for. My opinion is the best people that are uh, really good at this, there isn't some sort of formula, but they have certain qualities, right? There's no doubt that really great sales leaders and or sales organizational leaders are good CROs. The, most of the really good ones, in my opinion, have been. But the best sales leaders, the ones that are really good at running sales organizations, the reason they're good at that is because they do understand those other things. 
They don't do it at the exclusion of those things. It's because they get it. They get the way in which their sales function fits into the company and they've managed their teams effectively that way. And so they're sort of already coming out of that role with a grander vision for how to run things and they have an ambition to bring those talents to the fore and really open up things. If you just hire somebody to be a CRO because they killed it last quarter or or they grew a company sales organization, I'd want to know, well, tell me how you integrated with marketing. What was your relationship with marketing? How did you integrate marketing metrics into the way your people... If they can't articulate that stuff, it's probably not going to be a good fit for you. Even though they'll be good at that, they're going to show stuff where they don't have a real holistic understanding of a business. And in my opinion, really amazing sales leaders do. They get all this stuff. They, they understand how this stuff all works. And they care. You know, They think about it a lot. But what I'm seeing now, this is really fascinating, is the people whom I'm seeing arising as great candidates for the CRO role are revenue RevOps leaders. So RevOps people whom have less of the introverted personalities that some RevOps leaders have, but more of the extroverted personalities, like real dynamic data-driven types of leaders whom are more scientific and understand how to create systems. They know everything because they're connecting the dots as a part of their job. I mean, they, they're looking at sales numbers, they're looking at marketing numbers, they're looking at customer outcome numbers by their discipline, and they understand how this stuff fits. So if they can take that discipline and they have, in addition, really strong leadership skills, which is frankly the most important part of this job, they can manage up, you know, they can manage down, they can manage sideways, they can talk to the board. Those people are really well-equipped because They've already got the inherent perspective of the entire business in the way that they operate. And I think my opinion is that if I was a revenue operations person today, I'd be thinking about if I felt that I had those sort of more like see, dynamic types of personality and well, leadership skills, a CRO role would be a really great pathway for them because you know where all the bodies are buried. You know how to run operations. You know how to build coalitions. You know how to align metrics. You know how to create outcomes that are aligned different people better than, in my opinion, someone who's been ensconced in like one discipline for 20 years, right? So I think that that's the future of this role, in my opinion. It'll take time. But I've spoken to some really amazing chief revenue officers in the last like six months who came from that place, and they're amazingly talented at this job. I do think it's shifting. And if I was a CEO I wouldn't be looking at just sales leaders for this job. I'd be looking at people who come to me with a holistic understanding of revenue operations and how they make things work together as systems and how they know how to lead teams. And to me, that would be someone who probably would do a really good job. Well, that's some really good advice, Warren. So much great advice you've given during this podcast that I wish we could keep talking all day. And I'm sure our listeners do too, because you've been handing out gold on this this last hour. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. (laughs) No, we very much appreciate it. And so if a listener was interested in learning more about what you're doing and how you're helping, what's your preferred method of communication? Yeah, sure. So LinkedIn, my big loud mouth there. So you'll probably <laughs> see me doing stuff. Any DM, if you just mentioned, I heard just you on a podcast, I would like to talk to you about X, Y, or Z. You can reach me at warren at the com. just to give you a sense of like what... So if you're a sales leader and you want to become a CRO, I have a CRO accelerator course. It actually helps that like last mile for someone who maybe wants to do that job. And it's a really great course. And then um, for CROs, CROs hire me to help them navigate the situation they're in. Most of them are in tough spots. They found themselves in a situation that they need to get out of or they need to improve. And then CEOs, I help them build what I call CRO-ready organizations. I help them get their company ready for a chief revenue officer and identify who is the right person for that job and make sure that it works. So 
you know, those are the three sort of people I'm trying to help. And that's the way to reach me. And I really appreciate this conversation. I really like talking about this stuff. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much for giving us your valuable time. We know how busy you are. So that's it for today, folks. That does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. You can check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your friends, family, your coworkers, your kids. Get them off their screens for a little while. And if you like what you hear, please throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer with my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. Until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.